This week on Miranda Warnings, we talked to Frank Figluzzi, former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI and current NBC News national security analyst. Frank is the author of The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. We talk about the need for a domestic terrorist law in the wake of the Capitol insurrection, the intelligence failures leading up to that fateful day, and how politics may have played a factor into why the Capitol was left unprotected. When someone robs a bank, we don't arrest them for trespassing the bank. We arrest them for a far more serious crime called bank robbery, and they go away for at least 10 years. Why? They've committed a crime against the government. The federal government insures the money in the bank. When someone tries to steal our democracy, we arrest them for trespass, theft of Nancy Pelosi's podium, is assault, serious, but not reflective of the gravity of what happened that day. We need a domestic terrorism law that puts people away for 20 years to life, just like we have on the international terrorism side. Frank also shares some stories from his FBI days, the FBI's core values, and how James Comey failed to live up to one of Frank Figluzzi's seven C's. Outlined in his book, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and a partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedi in Albany, New York. This is Miranda Warnings. You have the right to remain listening. Welcome, Frank. It's great to have you. I'm glad we could do it, Dave. Thanks for uh, inviting me. This is a very timely topic. I want to get your insights. I want to mention also that Frank is the author of a book called The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence, which provides insights on both on the life of an FBI agent, as well as the FBI's core values, which can be applied not only to the FBI, but to leaders of all organizations. Frank, it's a great book on a lot of different levels. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the origins of, of why you chose to write this book. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you're very kind. I, I did something I never, I swore I would never do. I thought, I thought I'd never be that FBI guy who writes the book and, and, and tells the, the inside stories. But I felt the need to do it because of four years of uh, the public getting misperceptions of what the FBI is and isn't. Some, some of those uh, misperceptions were the FBI's own doing in terms of senior leadership, but most of them, Dave, were not. Most of them came straight from the administration, the former uh, occupant of the Oval Office. And here's what bothered me. I don't mind criticism of the agency that I spent 25 years uh, dedicated to. What I do mind is that that misperception by the public was undermining the mission and success of the men and women of the FBI. So I decided to write a book that said the following. The FBI performs at an exceptionally high level of excellence when the stakes are the highest, when the stress is the greatest. And I spent 25 years inside the organization observing how they do that kind of values-based performance, values-based leadership. And I even led internal affairs functions that were responsible for preserving the core values of the FBI. And the book says you don't have to spend 25 years in the FBI to glean some of these lessons. I distilled it down to something I call the seven C's, and I put it in a book called the FBI way. So far, it's doing quite well on, on a few levels, Dave. Um, it's, it's a leadership book that CEOs are, are grabbing. 
um, but also it's it's helping people get through this, this strange journey we're on as a nation right now in terms of how we lead ourselves out of this crisis we're in. Well, I thought the book was uh, very interesting on a lot of different levels. Uh, you did break it down to the seven C's. Um, and in each chapter, you talk about the core value. And then also, I think most interestingly, you give uh, an example uh, of, of that core value and how it uh, is uh, executed on um, in, the, in the FBI. I also want to thank you. Nice shout out to Miranda Warnings on page 149. It's always nice to get a shout out to, uh, for Miranda Warnings. Thank you very much. Um, so the core, the core, the seven C's are uh, code, conservancy, clarity, consequences, compassion, credibility, and consistency. And, and that's how you break down the chapters. Uh, tell us how you came with, up with those seven C's. Yeah, it's not just kind of a neat device that people will remember, although I will have to admit it's helpful to have a device that people can remember with, with all seven uh, chapters starting with the hard C sound. But look, I, there's a deliberateness to the order of the chapters. And even as I wrote the book, I, I moved some of the order of the chapters because I thought it needed to flow logically on how you build a leadership and compliance program um, in proper order. So no surprise, it starts with something called code. And by code, I mean simply that a code of conduct that flows from your core value. So I think, I think it's time, particularly in our country, where we all took inventory on a personal level, on a, on a law firm or corporate level, and particularly on a national level about what it is that makes us tick and what it is that cannot we cannot afford to be threatened um, to the point where it might even be an existential threat to our success. So here's, here's what I point out in the book. The FBI prominently promulgates its core values. Every FBI employee knows where the core values are, knows what they are, and a code of conduct, a rigorous code of conduct has been developed and articulated that flows from that. So you know, ask yourself, have you really taken inventory of what it, what it is that you, cannot happen with your employees? Because it, it goes to the heart of what you are as an organization. And, and that flows right into the next chapter of conservancy, the simple concept that preserving values, our values as a nation, is a team sport. Each and every one of something greater than, our, and I tell some pretty um, pretty good war stories from my career, cleared for the first time ever by the FBI's pre-publication review unit that illustrate things like code being instilled in agents from day one at the FBI Academy. With regard to conservancy, talking real stories about how the FBI instills in every one of its leaders this notion that you're responsible for far more than yourself you're going to have to spend time in internal affairs inquiries. You're going to have to spend time on, on the inspection teams, the audit staff of the FBI, because it's not someone else's job to do standards, integrity, and compliance. It's your job. And, you know, these, these uh, uh, seven C's that you have, they're not just, you know, words that are put on a, on a wall. Uh, as you talk about it, it's something that's inbred, something that 
uh, every day uh, is worked on. I want to talk about the first one a little bit, the code. Uh, you indicated in there amongst the, the, the most important in the code is honesty. Uh, and you talk about the importance of honesty in all things uh, that the FBI does. And one of the things that was striking and certainly makes a lot of sense is that a dishonest agent is useless to the FBI. And so that the, the thought of honesty um, was so important. And you give uh, an example of an agent who was using uh, a, a bureau car uh, improperly and took his kids to the to the school, I, I think. But then not the not the worst, most egregious crime. Um, but when he was uh, asked about it, he lied about it and he lied about uh, circumstances surrounding it. And then later in the book, you talk about and he was uh, dismissed. Uh, uh, and then you, later in the book, you talk about another agent who used the uh, bureau car to buy heroin for his wife. And the difference was when he was investigated about it, he was honest and there was a punishment, but it wasn't as severe as the one who lied about it. And so talk a little bit about the importance of honesty in the FBI and, and in your book. Yeah. Well, so the two examples you gave are, are really helpful in illustrating um, not only you hit, you hit about four chapters right there, which is awesome, but it also illustrates the juxtaposition of two cases that, that, that you would have thought, well, one's pretty minor. You'll probably let that guy off the hook. One's really serious. An FBI agent bought heroin for his drug addicted wife. That sounds incredibly serious. And, and you did not um, fire him. What's that all about? So let's walk through um, the, the themes that those apply to. I, I give a case example of an agent, a bright young agent who decided to lie about uh, the number of times that he picked up his daughter from daycare in a government FBI vehicle. So ordinarily, that is a you know unauthorized passenger, misuse of the car, it's, it's uh, codified in, in CFR, the Code of Federal Regulations. It's 30 days without pay. It's not that big a deal. He made it a big deal by deciding that he would lie about the number of times and significantly lie. We had, we had solid proof through, through toll record passes, through, through the pickup log at the daycare center, that he was significantly lying for reasons that, that still escape me. So I use this as an example of in the clarity chapter and the consequences chapter. In clarity, it's about this, what the FBI calls its bright line. And again, I come back to your law firm, your corporation, your team, your whatever it is you're leading. It could be a little league team. What is the bright line that, that you just can't cross? Um, the team has to understand this can't happen. And for the FBI, it's very simple. It's lying under oath. Why? Your, your audience will know about Giglio Henthorne issues, trans, uh, uh, trustworthiness, honesty issues. You can't put an FBI employee on the witness stand in a criminal case if they've ever been found to be a liar, particularly under oath. And FBI employees are under oath whenever there's an administrative inquiry. So we had no choice. It was agonizing. And I, I was the head of uh, an Office of Professional Responsibility Adjudication Unit at the time. And it it killed me. It kept me up at night that I had to propose for dismissal an agent because of what? Because of the number of times he picked up his toddler at daycare. Well, this agent 
uh, challenged his his uh, proposed dismissal through the Merit Systems Protection Board. And all. And by the way, here's another thing. When someone challenges your most important values, you need to defend them like crazy. And here's what I mean by that. At the Merit Systems Protection Board level, an administrative judge looked at me on the witness stand and said, the FBI's bright line on honesty is too is too strong. You you can't be firing people about daycare lies. And I and the FBI lawyers in, in that room stood up at attention and went, that's it. That's it. No one is telling us what our values are. And and then this agent challenged his dismissal in all the way up to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And the FBI General Counsel's Office said, bring it on. Do not challenge our values about honesty. And we won that argument. But here's the point. Identify what it is in your organization, that the line that can't be crossed, and then fight like hell if someone challenges it. Now, you mentioned the other example where an agent was found to have horrific stress in his life. This is under the chapter, another C word, it's a chapter called compassion. If you're going to have consequences, you better administer them with compassion. And initially... When we learned that an FBI agent was accused of buying a fix of heroin for his drug-addicted wife, it sounded like an immediate termination. But as that internal investigation unfolded, we found an incredible amount of stressors in this agent's life. And one day he got called into work, unexpected emergency support for his team, no babysitter available, the in-laws were out of town, his wife was coming out of rehab, going through withdrawal, the kids needed to be watched. He did something horrifically stupid. He piles everybody in the car, finds a fix of heroin for his wife. And of course, he gets caught doing it and reported. And now we come in and have to make that decision. He got, he got suspended without pay for a lengthy time. But most importantly, the FBI's employee assistance program came alongside his family and gave him some much needed support that he was way too embarrassed to have asked for himself. So examples of compliance, integrity, compassion, and consequences. Yes, all very uh, serious. Uh, you know, I was waiting for the chapter on comedy. Uh, perhaps there would be some outtakes, but it never came. Maybe, maybe for the next. I one. do have, I do have some, I do have some lighthearted humor in the book, <laughs> and I won't tell the the, the full story. But um, there's a certain possum that found his way in and out of the anthrax-filled building in Boca Raton, Florida, um, while we were doing a deadly serious murder scene first ever anthrax murder in FBI history. And we we have teams in hazmat suits going in and out of a three-story anthrax-filled building where someone died. And I do share a lighthearted moment where we, ca- we caught a possum coming in and out of this anthrax-poisoned building and had to make a decision about the fate of the poor possum. In your chapter on conservancy, uh, you discuss FBI Director Comey's missteps uh, during the investigation of uh, Hillary Clinton during the 2016 election. Why uh, was James Comey perhaps, uh, in this regard, a poor conservator for the FBI at that time? Yeah, I, I think all of us are capable of being caught up in the moment, but not seeing around the corners or thinking uh, in terms of third, fourth order effects and consequences of our thinking. And and my issue with Comey is not that he doesn't have the highest integrity and good faith intentions. He's the guy you'd love to have as a neighbor. You'd ask him to watch the kids while you're running an errand. That's that's not the issue. 
The issue is he forgot a couple of things when he decided to do that infamous press conference, you'll recall with the flags draped behind him saying, quote, no reasonable prosecutor would ever prosecute Hillary Clinton on the emails case. A couple of things wrong with that. One, in that moment, he politicized the FBI with about half of our population. And that is the cardinal sin. The FBI has got to remain apolitical and neutral or they lose their effectiveness. And of course, you know, history now, we all know the rest. The other half of the population got upset when he called another, made another announcement and said, we've had to reopen the Hillary case because we found new emails. And then on the eve of a presidential election, he announces, never mind, we didn't find anything new. At that point, the FBI was about fed up um, with, with the, excuse me, the public was about fed up with the FBI. And for me, this was damaging, so damaging to the Bureau's success that I needed to write about it in the book. But he forgot another thing, which is accountability. We're all accountable to somebody. And not only should he have protected the Bureau, but he forgot he was accountable to the Attorney General of the United States, his boss. He's not a prosecutor. The FBI doesn't make prosecutive decisions. Now, I think there was some role confusion. I think that he had served as Deputy Attorney General of the United States. He had served as U.S. Attorney in New York. He was a career prosecutor. He slipped right back into that, made a prosecutive call, which actually damaged the Bureau's reputation. Right, and that's why it's in the uh, conservancy chapter, because uh, as you point out, the FBI's role is to be an investigator, not a prosecutor. And when he went in, up and made those statements, he was under the appearance of, of potentially being a prosecutor, which was- And, and, and he handed, in that moment, he handed Donald Trump a reason to fire him. I, I, I think on, on, uh, certainly invalidly, right? Because I don't believe Trump's claim in that famous memo that was written by DOJ saying, oh, yeah, you know, that was the screw up. It was the right, you know, it, it, no, we, we know that Trump fired him because it, for political reasons and, and self-preservation on the Russia case, but didn't matter. Um, then, then the reason was out there for Trump to smash and bash the Bureau and other senior executives. So um, really historically a, a bad call. You know, in your chapter on consistency, uh, you raised something that I think is relevant to uh, some of the problems we're, we're seeing today over the, you know, the last month with the insurrection. You said that uh, after 9-11, uh, the FBI needed to transform from an agency great at investigating an incident after it happened to one that could predict and pre prevent one before it happened. Um, and so and that's those are two obviously very different things. Um, how does that uh, apply to the insurrection that we saw on January 6th. Of course, you're investigating now those perpetrators uh, that were part of the insurrection. But was there some failure before that that uh, could have been addressed? Yeah, there's there, so that chapter of consistency applies in, in a few ways. Let me address the, the, uh, the question that's all on our minds is how could this have been prevented? Could it have been, and, and how do we change things? So I called the insurrection not so much an intelligence failure, but rather a failure to act upon available intelligence, meaning all the warning signs and indicators were there, 
And ironically, we're there for people like you and me, civilians, who could have sat at home and watched this play out on social media for at least two weeks prior to January 6th. Even talk, specific talk in certain extremist chat rooms about, about uh, over, quote, overwhelming the Capitol Police, unquote. So the question becomes, you know, what, what could have been done differently? And while the FBI has said, yeah, we, we, we shared our written concerns, intelligence assessments about violence with the Capitol Police, with the entire Capitol region through the Joint Terrorism Task Force, uh, and even the Capitol Police Intelligence Unit allegedly prepared an assessment that was even more troubling about the likelihood of violence. The question, of course, becomes um, the security posture and who made those decisions about the inadequate security posture. I believe, Dave, we need an independent commission to get ask those hard questions and get to those answers. I'm very concerned that politics entered in to a deliberate strategy to have an insufficient security posture. But more importantly, for, for those in the legal and FBI uh, sectors, I'm not entirely comfortable with the FBI saying, hey, we're not in the security building business. We told them there'd be a problem. Have a nice day. I, I, don't, I don't care for that either because they have to be a preventive organization. This gets us to a much larger question which is, does the FBI have the tools it needs to battle this new threat, this growing threat of domestic terrorism? And I say this, when the FBI Agents Association, for the first time, writes a letter to Congress, and and did so a year ago, easily, and says, we don't have the tools in our toolkit to battle domestic terrorism, we better pay attention. Um, When the FBI director testifies at least twice on the Hill and said, Long ago, um, domestic terrorism is the number one threat. And by the way, hate-based violence is the subset that leads that threat. We better pay attention. When a former assistant director for terrorism tells the Homeland Security Committee, we don't have the tools, we don't designate groups domestically, and they feign ignorance. Members of Congress on the Homeland Security Committee go, wait a minute, what are you talking about? What do you mean we don't have a law against domestic terrorism? What do you mean we, we can't designate groups? And he goes, yeah, it, yeah, we, we can't. So I, I, what I'm hearing from active duty agents right now, Dave, is they don't have it. Um, and we need to have a serious discussion and include the concerns about civil liberties and privacy. Absolutely. But let's talk about consequences, one of my seven C's, for doing something like like an insurrection at at the Capitol. And what I've been saying on television these days is this. When someone robs a bank, we don't arrest them for trespassing the bank. We arrest them for a far more serious crime called bank robbery. And they go away for at least 10 years. Why? They've committed a crime against the government. The federal government insures the money in the bank. When someone tries to steal our democracy, we arrest them for trespass, theft of Nancy Pelosi's podium is assault, serious, but not reflective of the gravity of what happened that day. We need a domestic terrorism law that puts people away for 20 years to life, just like we have on the international terrorism side. We should all be uncomfortable that if you change the religion of those people that entered the Capitol on January 6th, change it to Islam, make their objective violent jihad, and now you've got international terrorism laws and they go away to prison for a very long time. Something's wrong with that.
And something something is wrong with it, and it's not something that just happened on January 6th, as you point out. And there's been a recent story in the New York Times that the you know FBI director was saying that uh, the biggest threat to our country is domestic terrorism uh, brought on by white supremacists. That's something that was that was raised before. Um, repeatedly asked for additional funding so that you could monitor the social media, et cetera, stuff that's out there in plain sight. But you need to have you know uh, person power to, to to look at it. And you know you talked about uh, FBI Director Ray when he testified at Congress, but he got pushback. I mean, he got he got pushback from President Trump. He got pushback from uh, Attorney General Barr, um, and so it wasn't it wasn't something that was that was you know accidental. But there was a, a, a ton of resources that were put into the uh, supposed Antifa you know protests uh, uh, over the over the summer, um, and you know there are limits to our resources. And it seemed like it was clear that the domestic terrorism by white supremacists were going to was going to be put on the, the, the back burner, not on the front burner, as the FBI director was uh, was asking. Yeah, the former president simply did not want to hear that he was part of the largest threat faced uh, that we're facing in, in the country. He simply didn't want Want to hear it? That gets to the manipulation of intelligence and data that career professionals uh, uh, put out. But, but even more importantly, I would hate to see a solution here, which would not be a solution, where Congress once again simply says, "We'll throw money at this problem, build another unit, get some more hires on board, and look at this and study this issue." The, we're way beyond studying the issue. This isn't about entirely about resources. We need a law on the books. And a domestic terrorism law has been proposed repeatedly uh, through recent history and in a bipartisan fashion. Former Republican Senator from Arizona, Martha McSally, proposed a domestic terrorism law, and it looked a heck of a lot like Adam Schiff, Congressman Adam Schiff's uh, proposal. And guess what? They routinely get shot down in the Senate. Ron Johnson has shot down the language. And everybody is understandably jumps to this argument about civil liberties. Oh, my God, you're going to spy on American citizens. I'm not even going there yet. All, let's not even talk about designating groups. Calm down. I, I'm not suggesting we designate groups right now like we do with Boko Haram, ISIS, and Al-Qaeda. I'm suggesting we simply say this thing here that we define in the law books. We, do you know we have a definition on the books for domestic terrorism? In, in the US code, but we do not outlaw it. So all I'm suggesting is when somebody meets the definition of domestic terrorism, how about having a law that we can charge them with that's serious? So that when you walk into a US attorney's office, you say to them, hey, um, I've got this real, you don't say to them, I've got this really uh, hot uh, trespass case for you, and they shut you down. No, walk into the US attorney's office and say, I have a domestic terrorism case for you. That's that's where this should be going. So, you know, putting the domestic uh, terrorism law aside just for a moment, um, as you indicated, we had the we had the intelligence about what was going on on January 6th. There's certainly were laws were broken and we could anticipate that the laws were going to be broken. Where was the failure? 
mm-hmm. in preventing this. So we knew it was going to happen. We knew it was going to break the law. We knew that it was dangerous. Why weren't we able to stop it? All right. I'm going to, I'm going to address this on, on two tracks. First, let's talk about um, what the FBI can and cannot is and is not allowed to do. And, and, what, and we can go beyond the FBI too. I mean, no, 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 uh, no. I, I, and I yeah. want to, believe me, I'm, I'm about to, but, but I want to point something out that I think people has been that in all the chaos has been swept, uh, uh, has taken a backseat. The FBI has admitted and, and shared with the public that they actually disrupted the travel of over a dozen predicated subjects. Now, here's what that, let's, let's, let's understand the seriousness of that. The good news is the FBI actually had enough predication on over a dozen Americans to open cases on them prior to the insurrection and to knock, do what they do, knock and talk is what they call it, which is not a pleasant conversation at your front door. Um, And basically saying, you're this close to getting arrested, my friend. If you get on a bus, plane, train, or car and head to D.C., that may be the, the probable cause that puts you over the top and into handcuffs. They say they stopped over a dozen of the baddest of the bad from traveling. That's great news, but what does that tell us? It tells us, since we saw a, a, a lot higher number of badasses get inside the Capitol, that they should have been doing that to more people. And why were they not predicated? Because the current rules say you have got to be clearly articulating violence to get a case opened on you right now, and the FBI's ability to see everybody's social media, right? A lot, I went on TV and had actual TV hosts say, Frank, how did, why is it the FBI looking at everybody's social media? And I said, well, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. Are you suggesting that the FBI should be looking at everybody's social media, number one, and do you think they have the resources to do it? So we need to change the operating rules about this because if you're Al-Qaeda or ISIS, rest assured, the FBI is in your chat room, in your comms, right? Undercover agents, court-ordered FISA wiretaps. Have you noticed we haven't had a major act of terrorism since 9-11? That's because the tools are there and they work. All right, so then let's talk about why this happened on, on the 6th. Look, this if we ever get a truly independent commission, I'm... I'm, my gut tells me we're going to find some horrific layers of responsibility and direction when people are saying that members of Congress may have given tours of the Capitol before, in the days before uh, the insurrection. When we see uh, allegations and reporting that a meeting occurred at the Trump Hotel the night before the insurrection, when Trump family members and people like Peter Navarro um, and a new senator from Alabama were there discussing with activists what was going to happen. When uh, a new member of Congress, Lauren Boebert, s- tweets beforehand, this is our 1776, you're going to find prior knowledge, coordination, and planning. And I don't think it was a mistake that the Capitol Police were in their daily uniforms um, unequipped to deal with this, that there was no tactical team, no National Guard uh, staged and ready. I, I think this was orchestrated. And, and when you change people out at the Pentagon at the last minute, when you change people at other organizations and we were all scratching our heads, why the heck would anybody be changed out in the days before a, a new president comes in? I think we're going to find that this was part of it. 
Well, um, I certainly, I certainly hope so. It seems to me as though it was orchestrated. Um, I, I certainly appreciate uh, your insights uh, on all this. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Frank, for being with us here on, on Miranda Warnings. I want to thank you for your service uh, to our country uh, in, in your professional career. These are all very serious topics. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, very appreciative of you continuing to be uh, outspoken on them. Um, we do have something of a lighthearted feature here on Miranda Warnings called Music Book or Movie. And so maybe you can share with us uh, for our audience and it helps get you through the day. Well, I, I, here's a couple of things. I'm going to hit two of those categories really quick because I, I think many of us are just way too glued, understandably, to really hard, depressing news in a global pandemic, a polarized society and an insurrection. And so I have I am forcing myself to do things to get away from that deliberately at, um, at times during the week. And of course, I, I stay with my fitness routine. But in terms of books and movies, um, my wife and I have really been uh, enjoying Time Out for for Netflix. We're doing the Netflix series. We just got we just finished a great series called Chance, and it's and it's Hulu, and it's about a neuropsychiatrist. It's the same actor um, uh, Lori who who um, plays Doctor House in the fame in the famous TV series uh, House. He plays Chance. It's a great series. With regard to music, Dave, I, uh, I'm a classic rock fan. And what I've decided to do in, in part to keep my sanity these days is develop a playlist. I've really never done it. But now if you come into my house uh, in certain moments, I'm, uh, I'm listening to cla uh, classic rock. And I, I just keep adding songs to the playlist as I, uh, as I recall them. But it's, all, it's just all part of trying to take a break. Um, from the harsh realities and, uh, and get some happiness into, into the house. That's right. Well, uh, again, uh, Frank Frigluzzi, thank you very much for being with us on Miranda Warnings. Thanks for the shout out in, in your book, The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. Thanks for having me, Dave. Stay well. In the days since we recorded this episode, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has called for a 9-11 style commission to investigate the attack on the Capitol and anything related to the interference with the peaceful transfer of power. Citing the proof presented in the trial of Donald Trump in the Senate and findings from a review of capital safety infrastructure, Speaker Pelosi said she's committed to getting to the truth of how this happened. If you like Miranda Warnings, you have the right to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.